This is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Today we're discussing some legal concerns related to the collection and use or misuse of personal data. This podcast features interviews with Professor Lior Strahilovitz and Professor Omri Ben-Shahar from the University of Chicago Law School. They discuss current privacy issues facing consumers and proposals to align consumer expectations with the realities of modern data use. I'm Megan Kagashal. And I'm Yosef Schaffel. And we're online editors with the University of Chicago Law Review. So, Megan, in the news, you see a bunch of different stories about data breaches and people generally being concerned about how their data is being used. When companies are using the data, are they telling customers ahead of time? Yeah, so privacy policies include, for the most part, um, information about how companies plan to use uh, customer data. But people just don't read these policies. Yeah, doesn't it seem unreasonable that every time you know there's an Apple update, you would read a hundred page document to find the one sentence where they say, you know, you're going to be giving away all of your privacy rights? Right. Given the number of times that people encounter these privacy policies every day, it would probably take them months over the course of a year to just read through all of these policies and understand what they mean. I'm Omri Ben-Shahar. I'm a law professor at the University of Chicago. The problem is that if you try to read them, if you were serious about knowing what is being done to your data every time you enter into an environment in which it is used, you would have to spend something roughly akin to half of the year, nonstop, your waking hours, reading them. Lior I'm the Sidley Austin Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. Nobody reads privacy policies. To be honest, we're interacting with so many you know, websites, Internet of Things, connected devices, vendors every day that it would be irrational for any of us to actually read through privacy policies. A common solution has been to have companies just disclose more clearly and succinctly the information that they're collecting with the goal of having your consumers making more informed choices. This might seem intuitive and effective, but it really doesn't work. So the solution that was invented or that was thought of, very reasonable, very alluring solution is make it simple. Tell people simply, shortly, clearly what is going to be done. Now, in parentheses, I'll say, I'm not sure you can take say something complicated in a simple way, right? Um, whatever is being done with our data is not that simple. But let's imagine that it's possible. Let's imagine that you can put a nutrition data box style disclosure. This is what we're going to do with your data. The most, the worst things are just going to pop up there. Maybe that will help people change their behavior. So to that end, I did a study with Adam Chilton where we set up a fake environment in which there are terrible privacy policies and ask people terribly penetrating and uh, offensive questions to see how they behave and warn them that what we do about and just changed the way we warn them all the way to, you know, from the worst type of disclosure, long, cluttered, bad font, passive language, you know, basically unreadable to all the way down to Uh, the warning box, simple warning box, and everything in between. We found that there's no no difference, that people do not behave differently, regardless of how the disclosure is given to them. And I guess the point was to say that disclosure, however engineered and however smartly and wide and efficiently designed, is not the solution. 
That's not to say that privacy policies don't have any impact. Consumers do have very strong expectations of privacy, um, and they're pretty well-formed, and there are issues about which you can find very strong consensus among consumers when you do things like survey research into privacy attitudes. One of the directions that that I've been taking in, in my scholarship is to say, well, maybe the terms of the agreement are not necessarily just what's in the in the four corners of the privacy policy, but um, but maybe the terms of the agreement are what ordinary consumers expect, which can be informed by the privacy policy language to the extent that it gets a lot of publicity, you know, from the media or from consumer reports or other experts that people might pay attention to. But it may also be people just um, experiences, their norms, their uh, expectations that arise from dealing with similar situations in, in their lives. So we think that people really do care about their own data and they feel uncomfortable with, you know, whenever there's a data breach. Yet, at the same time, aren't people knowing that this is a risk still signing up for all sorts of services that use their data? Yeah, so this is called the privacy paradox. Um, it's basically the idea that people say they care a ton about their the privacy of their information, but then they act in ways that aren't consistent. So they'll disclose a ton of information about themselves for very little personal gain. A big question in the field of data protection is what is it that people care and hope to do? There are two types of evidence that conflict. First, people say that they care and they want their data not to be taken, if taken, to be protected and not shared in ways that are uh, uh, troubling to them. Second, despite the fact that they know that all of these bad things are happening, they continue to give the data and to participate and enter platforms for sometimes relatively minor benefits. So we call this the privacy paradox. People say they care about the privacy, but they behave in ways that are not always consistent with what they say. There are studies that demonstrate this in a very dramatic way. People say first how much they care, and then for a slice of pizza, give access to the, a lot of the confidential stuff that's on in their, on their smartphone. Slice of pizza, right? And so it's a, it's a paradox. Do people care or they, do they not? It is true that oftentimes when you ask people how much they care about privacy, they say they care a ton. And then when you ask them how much they'd be willing to pay for more privacy-protective um, products than what they're getting from Facebook or Google, they say um, either I wouldn't be willing to pay, or if I would be willing to pay, I'd only be able to pay. I'd only be willing to pay a little bit. I think that's being driven by a couple of things. Probably the most important is that people are used to not paying for things when they're dealing with online media. So you do pay for Facebook, you pay for Facebook with your data, you do pay for Google, you pay for that with your data and um, uh, and you're basically selling some of your attention to Google in exchange for you know a great real-time mapping program or navigation program or lots and lots of free email storage. Um, but in a world where people are used to having the out-of-pocket price for something be zero, getting them to out-of-pocket price of even a dollar 
is is very difficult. And I think um, Facebook and Google and other big tech companies know this. Professor Strahilovitz gave us some background on the current regulatory approach to privacy. I think it's correct, and I think a number of people at the Federal Trade Commission think it's correct, that there can be negative externalities associated with privacy breaches. So um, uh, the Equifax breach was really, really bad, and it harmed a number of people. Um, But I think it harmed companies that were not Equifax. It harmed people whose data was not breached in the Equifax breach by making people more worried about a lack of control over their data or by making people have to be more vigilant than they otherwise would prefer to be in monitoring their credit history or monitoring their credit card bills or doing any of these other things. And that's time that could be spent elsewhere. And so when you force people or when you provide very strong reasons for people to want to, you know, devote 30 minutes every six months to checking their credit history and making sure there's no fraudulent charges or unanticipated accounts, you're taking away from time they could be spent with their families or working or doing things that they love. And that's, that's, a, that's a cost for society. I think the FTC is concerned about all of these things. What what privacy regulators and even privacy scholars struggle with is how to deal with the problem of privacy harms where privacy harms are often very probabilistic in nature. Privacy harms are probabilistic in the following sense. My data was breached, and then a year after the breach occurred, uh, I get a notice from my credit card issuer that uh, there's some funny charges on my credit card account. And it turns out I'm not making those charges, and so I need to cancel the credit card. And then that means a week goes by and I don't have a credit card, and that's a big inconvenience. So given that these breaches occur, are there any legal teeth or legal approaches we can take? Okay, I've been harmed. The question, though, from a legal perspective, or an interesting question from a legal perspective, is uh, it's true that a data breach occurred. And then it's also true that I was the victim of identity theft, but establishing a causal connection between the th- breach and the identity theft might be quite challenging because after all, my credit card issuer isn't the only company out there that has a whole bunch of my information. Uh, that same information is replicated maybe at 50 or 100 different places in the economy And it could be that the credit card breach, which we know about, was the source of the problem. Or it could be that some other breach that we don't know about was the source of the problem. So then the question becomes, okay, let's say that I was victimized by identity theft. Let's say that the harm to me was $100 or $300. Should the legal system be comfortable saying something like, well, you know, we think there's a 20% chance that the identity theft occurred because of Chase uh, Chase Bank's data breach. Therefore, you know, we think that Strahilovitz was harmed to the tune of $100. Chase, Chase harmed him by $20. You know, just do the math. Um, I think that's actually the best approach. I think that's the, the most sensible approach. The legal system doesn't like that approach because uh, it wants to compensate people where it's more likely than not that a particular harm resulted from a particular act or omission. And in my example, where there's a huge 
group of people whose data was breached by Chase. Um, and that group is 20% more likely than the control group, everybody else who whose data wasn't breached to be victimized by identity theft. Uh, for none of those people, will it be more likely than not that Chase was the thing that caused them to be victimized by identity theft. So the problem is that if the legal system insists on the same standards of causation that we often insist on elsewhere, then there's going to be substantial underdeterrence um, and and harms are going to be left with consumers rather than shifted over to the people who are in the better position to prevent those harms from arising. Professor Ben-Shahar recently wrote a paper called Data Pollution and suggested as a way to reconcile the privacy paradox, the tension between how much people say they care about privacy and the actions they actually take to protect it. His approach also potentially provides a remedy for injuries that are social in nature. I wanted to suggest a, a new way to reconcile this tension. People care. People care about the fact that so much data is amassed by different platforms and used in many different ways, but not because or not solely because they care about their privacy, that they feel that something will infringe their private spheres, their core self. When we think about privacy, it's a very personal injury. Rather, they think about the world in general, the environment, the uh, this brave new world that we live in, in which so many new things are happening with the algorithmic knowledge of people's preferences and behavior and this personalized environment, is that a good world to live in? Even though, personally, they may benefit from the personalized services, as a society, is it is it good or not? And I thought that pollution captures this well, because pollution looks, industrial pollution, was a problem that had to do with the fact that we choose products that service us well, but we ignore the fact, in our private consumption, that it creates a social negative effect. One of the inspiring examples was the Cambridge Analytica scandal, where information was used to tailor advertisements and politicalize to people to affect their voting. Now, you can think of it as a privacy problem. People's, the people who were targeted are affected, but it doesn't seem like they are the, peop the people who s were showered with, you know, negative ads on Hillary Clinton or Brexit in England or so, are complaining. They're happy with the result, how they voted. It is the sense that something about the integrity of our election uh, environment was undermined. That is a typical public good. Call it a negative externality affecting others. There are many other examples in which people give data that affects not just them, but others. Uh, for example, Gmail users allow Google to scan the text of their emails, including the text of the email that they received from non-Gmail users. Facebook users allow information about contacts and things that occur in their uh, pages uh, that uh, reflect on others. And the final example has to do with data security. So when a website loses People's data get gets hacked. Um, yes, this, the risk is private. Identity theft is a private injury. But people are largely insured against that. 
most of the harms are just a hassle to overcome it, but the, the mega disasters don't happen to people because there are various forms of social and private insurance against these kind of losses. The problem is that because of the lax data protection practices of uh, those platforms, the cost of the social cost of data leaks increases. So the social cost to insure against it that we all pay rises. And that's, again, a public aspect, not a private one. So we know that the potential harms from data misuse and data breaches are pretty significant. Did our guests have any particular proposals or more general ideas on how to mitigate these potential harms? Yeah, so they both suggested a few potential solutions. And Professor Sterhilovitz primarily approaches the question from the perspective of how we can do a better job of protecting individuals' privacy. Professor Ben-Shahar has proposed solutions to decrease the social costs of data collection and misuse. The biggest challenge in privacy is, is what we refer to as failures of imagination. You're giving up a data set and information about yourself at a time where doing so seemed pretty innocuous. And then there's advances in data mining techniques. There's advances in, in computer science that allow people to use data that was surrendered at time one under a certain set of technological assumptions and put them to some new use that was totally unanticipated by consumers, maybe even by engineers in time one. And then those new uses might really benefit some consumers, but they might really um, be to the detriment of other consumers. And so the kinds of contracts that we're talking about, where someone creates a stream of data and then maybe five, six, 12 years later, that stream of data from 12 years ago comes back to bite them. It just seems to me that it's impossible um, for even sophisticated consumers to try and figure out what they should do. And so from my perspective, then some of the things we should be thinking about are um, not rights to delete information, which is the way some of the legal proposals are going, but automatic deletion of information. I don't particularly want my emails from you know seven or eight years ago to be deleted if I didn't delete them, but I do want my geolocation information from my phone to be deleted after a year. At that point, the business really doesn't need it, and I'd prefer that it not be stored on a server somewhere. Um, you know, I, I I've received um, uh, data breach notification letters myself uh, about entities that I lasted business with 10 years ago that are still retaining my social security number. Why are they still hanging on to my social security number? Basically because they've got no strong legal incentive to actually do the work of purging themselves on it. And so I'd really like to see the legal system build in um, strong incentives for companies that are keeping our data uh, to do reasonable things like purging it after a year or purging it after the customer relationship is severed. Um, there are lots of steps that companies should be taking, could be taking, that wouldn't be horrifically costly, that would help you know, minimize the likelihood of data breaches or minimize the harms associated with data breaches when they do occur, and might also address this problem of, oh my gosh, if I surrender this data now, what are the implications of that for me or even for my family, if you're talking about genetic information, five or 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road when the, when the technology has changed and therefore the rules have changed about what, what the uses of the data are. I think a lot of companies do have the, exactly that thought process of, we don't have a use anticipated for the data now. 
but it could be valuable either to us or to someone else. So let's hang on to it. And one of the things, this didn't used to be a problem because storing data used to be really expensive. And now it's, you know, the price is, is heading towards zero for, for storage. So I think the way to think about the problem is basically to, to build in, you know, the right set of default terms. So I think what I would say is, um, you know, let's go through the different kinds of data. Uh, people, they're storing photos in the cloud. They probably don't want those photos to disappear. Let's survey people and figure out if consumers want their photos to be stored on a on the cloud uh, forever, or if they want them to disappear after five years or ten years. And then let's give consumers what they want there by default. Okay, how long do people want their um, credit card information to be stored at a website that they do business with? It might be really convenient for some people if. They're returning to a website every six months to not have to pull out their credit card information. Some of that forms of storage can be good, but two years, three years, if there's been no intervening transactions, okay, now, well, you know, you're probably um, uh, probably the 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 costs of retaining or from the consumer's perspective are in excess of the benefits of retaining. Again, from the consumer's perspective, so I think what I what I try and do is and what what we're trying to do now is figure out exactly what consumers expect and what consumers want the rule to be and then saying that's going to be the default rule one type of solution for the problem of public data pollution is to limit the emission of the most harmful data in that that is what environmental law does identifies particular Uh, chemicals that should not be emitted and limits the ability to do that. If we were able to identify databases that are particularly harmful, that create discrimination rather than personalization, that harm particular, you know, protected groups, we we could say these are kind of things you cannot, you should not collect. Uh, I'm a little worried about this type of solution. This is, by the way, the favorite, the, the new favorite solution in Europe for the problem as they understand it, the problem of privacy, um, which is to limit, they call it data minimization, um, and uh, all sorts of requirements and limitations and constraints on what data can be collected and how can it be used. Uh, the main concern is that this will crush innovation. An alternative to it would be to say, hey, firms, you collect data, you create some pollution through it, you create some social harm, pay for that social harm, pay a penny per bit, whatever, we, however we figure it out. Make them think about if they're really necessary to collect everything. Uh, and uh, maybe some things you have to pay more if it's data that's particularly sensitive. Maybe some things you have to do less. Maybe only the very big companies that have very big databases where more harm could occur, they have to pay to pay more. And maybe the whole story will be reversed. Maybe they have to be subsidized, and then we have to figure out how much to subsidize them because we have data greens, not data solution, pollution. I don't know exactly how to quantify the data tax, but it took you know two generations to begin to have a good idea how to quantify carbon tax. So maybe it's something to start thinking about, to get platforms to pause and not automatically to harvest the maximum data from their users and thereby subject their users to attacks. 
they you know they will be you'll en- enter a website and when you exit you'll see you were just seven cents were just added to your monthly tax bill it's like a utility cost like using electricity you've used something websites might compete on reducing that cost not collecting data that is unnecessary it needs to be if you start even with a very small currency it could have a moderating effect finally for data leaks leaking data in the environment I'd like to think about it in the same way that we think about pollution leaks you know chemical leaks you emit a pollutant into the water into the air you should pay per pollution not per harm so if Equifax lost the most sensitive financial data of 100 million Americans and if we know that let's say 5% will suffer or 1% will suffer identity theft and if identity theft cause costs according to FTC assessments a few thousand dollars per person to overcome then now you have a global sense of the cost that was discharged and make them pay it will come up to a lot of money for 100 million people um, but representing the best actuarial estimate that we have for the social harm caused that money doesn't have to go to victims because there it's not clear who the victims are or it can go to, proportionately to everyone gets a proportion amount we'll get a check for 50 dollars in the mail each one of us but the most the important thing is that the polluters will pay So we've talked broadly about how consumers might be subject to this privacy paradox and some ways to potentially combat that but have there been any concrete statutory steps taken? So there have been a few proposals for federal privacy legislation that would address a lot of the concerns that have come out of for example the Cambridge Analytica scandal and other sort of hot button privacy and data misuse issues that have been in the news lately. So I think the hope with these proposals is that they would do a better job at protecting personal privacy but also provide a way to address the social harms probably the the biggest impetus for potential federal action was the implementation of the GDPR in Europe uh the general data protection regulation that was a, a major and pretty sweeping revision of european privacy law um which isn't to say that european privacy law hasn't been protective for a long time it has been there was a european data protection directive that uh, governed for a long while before gdpr came along but gdpr is is broader um uh in its application the fines that uh, regulators can pursue under gdpr are much more substantial than what was available to them under the data protection directive and so the maximum fines under the GDPR uh rise all the way to 4% of a company's global revenue which is a huge huge amount of money for a major tech company like um like Facebook or or Google or Twitter so European Union implements GDPR then a couple of things happen uh one is that there starts to be some related pressure with respect to whether the processing of information that concerns european citizens can occur in the united states so separate and apart from gdpr there's a, a european uh, court case called schrems where um the european courts express real concerns about whether 
data protection in the United States is adequate to enable the private information or the personal information of Europeans to migrate across the Atlantic so that it can be analyzed, processed, stored in the United States. Um, initially, the protections that the U.S. had were found wanting in the Schrems opinion. That then led to the, led to the very quick negotiation of a of a transatlantic agreement called Privacy Shield. I think a lot of people, myself included, wor- worry that Privacy Shield may also be struck down as inadequate under uh, European privacy law, um, which may mean at some point that uh, this distance between the way that Americans are regulating privacy and the way that Europeans are regulating privacy causes transatlantic e-commerce to come to a screeching halt, which is a result that nobody on this side of the Atlantic wants. Um, okay, so so that's creating some pressure for the U.S. to move closer to Europe. Uh, GDPR is something that a lot of consumers, after they find out about it, think, oh, that's kind of neat. Why don't we have those, those rights here? And in particular, people in California start thinking in those terms. And they enact under pressure of a state initiative that almost certainly would have passed had it gone on the ballot. The California legislature enacts and the government signs let's call it GDPR light. Other states are also following California's example. Uh, Washington state uh, is uh, considering legislation that would go, I think, from my perspective, further than the California legislation does, and that frankly is just a better piece of legislation that wound up, than what wound up getting uh, enacted in California. The California legislature really did a rush job, and there's a lot of things in the California consumer privacy law that don't really make much sense. Washington, California are leading the charge, but the thought is that a number of other states will follow. And from technology companies, that presents a real problem. So it's one thing for tech companies to have to live with the California law. They'll do that when it goes into effect in 2020. But they're worried that California is going to mandate this, and Washington's going to mandate this, which is different, and Oregon's going to mandate this, which is different, and Illinois is going to mandate this, and New York, and so on. And they have to do business in all 50 states. So there's now a lot of pressure from tech companies who would really like for there to be, they're not crazy about comprehensive privacy regulation. But they'd much rather there be one piece of federal legislation that they're governed by in all the different states they do business rather than this patchwork of inconsistent and conflicting laws from state to state. So all of a sudden, some of the companies that had been quite resistant to federal legislation are now advocating for federal legislation with the proviso that the California law and other uh, state legislation be preempted. Uh, by the by, the federal law. Professors Ben Shahar and Strahilovitz have a few critiques of the proposals as they currently stand. I think the big problem is that there's still a tendency among privacy reformers to believe that the problem is lack of notice. And if only we told consumers what they did, what what we were doing with their data, and allowed them to object that that would solve everything. And that's just the wrong, we call this the notice and choice model. The notice and choice model just doesn't work. Um, it might work if we were all interacting with one, with one tech company, but in a world where we're interacting with seven or 12 or 15 or 300, it just doesn't work. It's never going to make sense for people to spend the time researching exactly what the nature of their bargain is with these firms. 
Um, so I think you will see coming out of um, Washington, D.C., a lot of notice and choice provisions or ideas that say we can really fix notice and choice. And I'm just very skeptical as to whether that provides a productive avenue forward. To the extent that these proposals trying to recreate some version of the European model that was also adopted in some variation in California, uh, I'm worried about them. They still view privacy as the problem and the types of uh, controls that they employ there might be a crushing effect on innovation, on the ability to try all sorts of new things. Uh, I think that companies should try, should collect data and try to find all sorts of new and exciting ways to use it, pay the small data tax, if necessary, to account for the social cost, but capture the great value that they are creating through private markets. You see, data has both downsides and upsides. We really want data to be experimented with and collected and all sorts of great things to be done with it with the understanding that the database owners are entitled to capture the upside, to sell access to the data and to, to make money from it as long as they not, do not emit the downside on society. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at LRev. Articles from the Law Review are available on the web at lawreview.uchicago.edu. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts and soundcloud.com slash This episode was produced by Yosef Schaffel. Thank you to our guests for joining us. This has been the final episode of Briefly Season 2. You can tune in next time for the first episode of Briefly Season 3. Our successors on the Law Review Board will be discussing the Roberts Court with Adam Liptak, Supreme Court Correspondent for the New York Times, and Lee Epstein, Professor of Political Science and Law at Washington University, St. Louis. We also want to thank the Executive Board of the Law Review, and especially Chris Walling, our Executive Online Editor, for all the hard work he's done to make this season a great success. Thank you, Chris. Music was provided by bensound.com.